So I'm sitting here with my dear friend and his spiritual intellectual companion, Eitan Ben Abraham. And uh, we're actually in the middle of a conversation that I thought it was worth sharing with anybody out there listening about uh, the experience of the intense, uh, dare I say, the massacre and the war, the massacre and the war. Let's just call it what it is. So, so Eitan, you said you really wanted to start with where. You're yeah. At. So, so, so I'm going to start with where I'm at, read the conversation we were having, because I think you made a really, really good point, which is that the Hamas attack on Israel was not an existential attack. It wasn't a nuclear bomb. It wasn't like an, an existential physical threat. But the posture that we as a people, Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, have to respond to 1,300 women and children butchered by monsters. And a couple hundred more that, taken captive. And, and a couple of hundred more taken captive that the response cannot be like a tit for tat. Like, no, it's like an existential response because how can we allow this right. on in our back door? How I just want to be sharp because what I said is that the attack wasn't an existential threat, but how we choose to respond is an existential danger to ourselves. Right. Yeah, because how, how can we allow this to exist on, on like an hour drive or less, 20-minute drive? How can we allow people who want to kill all of us in the most violent, horrific, painful, evil cruel ways, how can we allow the, the the Hamas system that is functioning in Gaza to continue? We and the can't. answer is we cannot. And so, right. And, and that's why it's an existential threat. Because if we were to allow it, if we were to tolerate it, if we were to say, it's okay if it happens again, we'd essentially be shooting ourselves. And yes. we can't do that. And so right. that is an existential response because because what it is representing, not just in some, some what Hamas is representing, not just in some symbolic or conceptual framework, but in a very practical way, is a visceral, a, primitive a, way. Right, is an existential threat. Yes. It is an existential threat. Their existence is a threat. And if we choose to allow yeah. their existence to continue, then we are right. sacrificing our own. So, what's the question? Right. Then? And, and so, and so, and so, then I totally understand why we're going to war in Gaza, right? I, I completely am support for the war effort. I, I was thinking about your whole thing of don't pray for peace, peace, pray for victory. And it's like, yeah, there, there are there are meta levels, and obviously, I want Mashiach and I want there to be peace and all those things. But in this particular context, it's like I'm focusing that the IDF be successful. I want can them I, to be can I successful. Explain, can I explain that sentence? Pray for victory, yeah. not for peace. Because it's, yeah. the, it's only part of a statement. What I actually said is that the morality of war is measured as much by the vision of victory which is pursued as it is by the means that are used in its execution. Right In the 20th century, we've become obsessed with the, the means of war. You know, crimes against humanity, war crimes, et cetera. And, that, and that's not for naught. I mean, we saw some pretty awful means of war. But we've lost sight of the fact that the morality of war lies in the vision of victory. Why are we fighting to begin with? And if we lack a vision of victory, of what, in my humble opinion, is a victory for all humanity in eradicating mm -hmm. such evil and, 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 and not just for our own selves, we lack that mm -hmm. vision. Our means can be as clean as you like. But 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 it is an immoral act because if you're not fighting to win, then you're either suicidal or simply immoral. 
I hear that, and I could go into that with you, but I wanna, I wanna stay on my train. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is my movie, says Aton. Okay, fine. What's what's on your mind? What's still, what's still alive with me, and what what we sort of got into is, is so it's like I support the war. I want the IDF to be successful. I want I want them to kill Hamas, right? And and there's a difference between a killer and a murderer, right? At the same sure. time, at the same time. And this is where you and I disagreed, and this is sort of what I wanted to get into. I have personally accepted that innocent people will die in Gaza during this war, right? And that that means that innocent blood will be on my collective hands. And I've accepted that, and I'm still for the war, but I have to, like, spiritually, in my conscience, bear a guilt that this is going to occur, but I think that that the war still has to happen and that we still have to pray for victory. But like I don't want to pretend that there isn't going to be, you know, quote unquote collateral damage. Okay, but you just conflated two terms which actually don't belong together. That's innocent blood and collateral damage. And before I even get to that, I want to just touch this spiritual guilt that you referred to. Guilt is a useless emotion. It may be a reality of human experience, but guilt has never added anything to anyone's existence. Real morality comes from where you began, which is the acceptance of a dilemma. Remember, moral choices are not between good and bad. And unless you're an absolute beast, and unfortunately we live in a bestial time, right? But unless you're an absolute beast, your moral choice is not between good and bad. Your moral choice is between nuances of good, less good, bad, less bad. Right? And, and, and so therefore, what we face right now is a true dilemma, as you started off by saying, our existence or theirs. In order to get rid of their existence and ensure ours, we must destroy Hamas. They themselves have deliberately embedded and enmeshed themselves in a civilian populace in a way in which, let's not forget, even according to world standards, is itself a war crime. Are actively taking measures to ensure maximum civilian death in the advent of a ground invasion, not even in the ground invasion, even in the, in the bombing that's going on right now. The question of guilt there, I think, is irrelevant. If you recognize you must make a choice and you believe in your ability to make the best choice in a bad situation, that's what morality is, then, then, then you may feel existentially that, that just it's, it's difficult, but guilt is not applicable in my humble opinion. And that leads me to the second point, which is that the difference, you conflated innocent blood and collateral damage, and 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 you started off when you said that there's a difference between a, a murderer and a killer, right? The, the Torah, people often mistranslate the Ten Commandments to say, thou shalt not kill, which is, of course, not what the Torah says. It says, lo tir tzach, thou shalt not murder. It's a moral statement that, that, that sometimes... Killing is necessary. You know, I think an extreme example, if I see a terrorist running with a knife toward, uh, I don't know, a mother and baby, let's go all the way. And I pull out my gun and I shoot him in the head. That's not murder. When the cop is in the range, right, and we've all seen these in the movies, when the cop's in the range, it's like the terror pops up. The terrorist pops up, bang, you shoot the terrorist. Terrorist yes. pops up, bang, you shoot the terrorist. Little kid pops up. Oh, wait, no, no, don't shoot the little kid. That's because a cop is a civilian force, which is my next point. Right, which is that in time of war, the moral choices that we make shift in scale. And you know the old quote that they attribute to Napoleon that that quantity has a quality all its own. 
Meaning once you shift in scale, we're no longer a policeman on the street or even a security guard stopping a single terrorist. We are going to war with an enemy who is absolutely committed, not, by the way, just to our own destruction, but to uh, an Islamic jihad you know, vision of conquest of the whole world. And in order to do that war, they've enmeshed themselves again in that civilian populace. Right. And so I would say to you that the term of innocent blood is not applicable here. I'm not saying that there aren't innocent people there in the sense that they've done nothing wrong. We could get into some discussion about what responsibility they hold for allowing such a situation to develop. We could also get into responsibility of what well, conversation we hold for allowing such a responsibility. Those are important conversations. But in the time of war, morality requires swift and absolute victory. I'll put it to you in a different way. Uh, I'll tell you a story. It's a difficult story, actually, from the last war, real war that I sat through, which was the Second Intifada, the so-called Oslo War, as I prefer to think of it, right? And at the end of that came Operation Homat Magain, right? The defense of the walls when we finally actually rolled tanks and stopped letting the terrorists use the territory we'd handed over to the Palestinian Authority as free base, right? And, and a dear friend of mine at the time was a sniper um, in the paratrooper unit, and he got pinned down in a house in Jenin. You with me? He got pinned down you. in a house in Jenin, he and his unit, and they called for air support, and they were refused. Why? Because their commander said there are innocent civilians in the buildings around you. You have to fight your way out. Is that a moral decision? We took this young man away from his home, his family. He's married. We trained him, put himself in danger continually. right? And then we sent him on a national mission to protect his people. And because we're unwilling to make a very difficult moral decision, I'm not making light of it at all. Please don't misunderstand me. We endanger his life. That's more moral. The question of innocent blood is not the same as the question of collateral damage. When you enter into war, moral equations shift. And it's you're correct. It's horrific. We're not a people to glorify war. And our vision is when we will beat our swords into plowshares, when the lion lays down with the lamb. But until we get to that time, I'd rather be the lion than the lamb. You're making this distinction between innocent blood versus innocence. Yes, because we're not seeking their blood. And that's why you conflated innocent blood with collateral damage. Innocent blood is a question which can be asked outside of the context war. That's why they call it collateral damage. If, if we've done everything we can, and perhaps I would argue too much, read my example with, with my, my friend, the sniper and the paratroopers, to be concerned with the morality of killing innocents. And we should be. But at the same time, it's actually not moral because in many ways, it's what's led us to allow evil to flourish on our doorstep. And so, and so this is the, and so, but see, that's, you know, really, Rav Mike, you, neither of us are arguing about whether or not the war is justified, right? No, neither of us no. are arguing about whether or not there's going to be collateral damage. What no. we're really arguing about is, is the spiritual posture that we're holding vis-a-vis what's going to occur. I'll be right? less abstract. We're arguing about morality. And what I'm telling you is that it's a false morality that you are reflecting, which will weaken you and is exactly what led to allow us to, 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 right. to let and, Hamas and, flourish and, on our exactly. doorstep. And, so, and, so, and, and, I, and I will even agree with you that, that, it's that, that it's that type of morality of, well, let's preserve innocent lives. Let's try to avoid conflict. Let's which try isn't to moral when what, what it results let's in is to, allowing a beast to grow stronger. And and so and so that's and 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 so just to, as an I don't think I've I think I understand your position a little bit better, but I I haven't been swayed. I don't full, know if I can fully fully say why I haven't been swayed, but but just to 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 talk it out. 
like I, I agree with you that that posture does allow the beast to grow bigger. And again, and that's why I'm wishing the IDF success to kill Hamas. Like, you know, the words are coming out of my mouth and I'm taking ownership of them. Right. Um, at the same time, just so you know, and I feel I have to say this because um, if this is going to a lot of people, then they have to hear my words in terms of just like how I work is that this it's sort of like there's there's floors of a building and the elevator goes up and down. And so on, on, on a very fundamental floor, I want the IDF to win. And at the same time, I had a dream many, many, many years ago that there was a war between two sides. And that there was so much innocent suffering on both sides that at the end, I didn't know who was the good guy and who was the bad guy. And the entire time, a voice was saying, the only thing that separates you from this is tzedakah. The only thing that separates you from this is tzedakah. The only thing that separates you from this is tzedakah. And so right now, because I'm in this moral quandary and because it is a tragic situation and because obviously no one wants war, right? That's I'm not getting true. a lot. Our enemies want war. Uh, Okay, fine. Our enemies want more. That's but, part of the moral but, equation. But, you can't just say no one wants war. It's not true. Okay, our enemies our enemies want us dead. Yes. Um, and that but, shifts the moral equation. But let me just finish. So I'm giving a lot of tzedakah because I don't know if there's really an intellectual way to to find, find – or at least I have not yet found an intellectual way through this uh, that where my conscience comes out clear but i know that i can give tzedakah and so very i'm just wise. giving a lot of tzedakah it's very wise i'm gonna tell you i don't know if you're familiar with it rabbi nachman actually says that um tzedakah is is the essence of solidarity i mean in the simple sense right but mm -hmm. but because it's the essence of solidarity i'm giving of my own to you it's actually not my mm -hmm. own it's actually the essence of the muna it's true faithfulness because the reality is is what i have is not mine and i'm not some pixelated individual Right. I'm giving right. some of what is in my possession to someone else and not only drawing a social solidarity, but becoming a, a real reflection of the divine intention that creation is one. Right. And, and so and, and, and that's very important at the same time. And I, mean, I would like to maybe move on from this point. Um, I, I just I I would encourage you and anyone else who's feeling that sense of guilt to ask yourself, what is the moral root of that guilt right and 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 what does it serve because because guilt is a choice in this situation and, and the question of what well, it serves know, is, is, well, is a very I important question i don't know if you want to move on or not because 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 to me i can can unpack this and, and, and no, also I, what do i, I, I mean another important piece that you got your 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 point of interest i get mine because right. we don't have okay. so much time so i want to i'm going to shift gears um a, a, to the to the feeling of grief that is so pervasive for so many of us, and 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 I'll tell you a story. I'm I'm uh I'm the home front command in the foyer household right now. My wife, God bless her, has an important job in a major hospital and is working very hard. And um, my kids, all five of them, one is in the army and one's about to draft, and the three others are in various stages of education. And and uh, I feel good about my um my role as home front command, but I find myself during the day breaking down and crying. Not just like here or there, but like there's kind of a constant low level. And then every once in a while, I let it out. I wept at my Shabbos table this week. And I don't feel good about that because it was Shabbos, but I feel good at it because sometimes you got to weep. And I've come to realize that for me, a lot of it passes through what I would call intergenerational trauma of the Holocaust. And I don't think we even need to go there to just point out how, you know, people have been saying that this is 
the worst day the Jewish people have experienced since the Holocaust, which is very dramatic, obviously. But let's not forget, we're talking about the worst day we've had in the last 80 years. Just stop and think about that for a second. Right? There's a lot of backstory. But but the reason I mentioned the grief is because I know a lot of people are feeling it. And I, and, um, and I wanted to name it. And I wanted to to remind people that the way we comfort mourners in Jewish tradition, what's the phrase we say? May you be comforted among the mourners of Zion. Well, that's the second half. First half. No, it's Hamakom right hamakom let the the place comfort you amongst the mourners of zion and jerusalem now hamakom is a name of god but it's a it's a rarely used one and it's highly specific in this context and understanding it i think will help people a little bit process their grief and and also is an important distinction between grief and the depression which may threaten right that you know um, one of the first signs of clinical depression is that you lose sight or experience of anything outside of your sadness. I don't know if you're familiar with that phenomenon, but you speak to people who struggle with depression and you say, you know, people say to them, hopefully well-meaning, oh, you can't cheer up, you know, you just got to get out and exercise, you got to do this, got to do that. And they don't appreciate that true depression, nothing exists outside of that state. Now, all-consuming grief, like we're feeling as a people right now, for not just the death and the and and the the destruction and the kidnapping, but just just for the sheer horror of the way in which it's happening, and the fact that we're still living in a world where, as Jews, our blood is cheap. And that grief needs to be deep, but it needs to be deep in context of the fact that there is actually something which lies outside of it. That's why when you go to a mourner. You say, I'm here holding a space outside of your grief. I'm not telling you you have to leave your grief. All in good time. But I want you to know that there is a world outside of it. And when you're ready, we'll be waiting for you. And that's why I think it's so important that we compare this to the Holocaust, not in order to sit at, like score points and, you know, the Nazi thing, which is, I mean, it's just simply true. But because don't forget, you know, did you grow up knowing any um, uh, Holocaust survivors? No. Really? Most of my father's family were, were survivors. I grew up with them intimately, holidays, weekends, you know. Um, they built a beautiful life. They had children, grandchildren, thriving businesses, communities, synagogues. Just think about that for a second. Why? Because there was something outside, even the horror they witnessed. And so all the people who might be experiencing grief out there, maybe perhaps yourself and certainly me, let yourself feel it, but know as you're feeling it that there is more beyond. And, and it's just important for me in order that people not be afraid of the sadness, because by the way, if you don't let yourself feel the grief, it doesn't go away. It just tends to transmute into things like anger, fear, sick inner trouble. That was my piece. You can respond or not, but I'm just hand it back to you. It was important to me because I woke uh, up uh, this morning. Both the grief and the well, comfort. I'll, I'll tell you when when I was listening to your words, what came up for me is that when I when I ride that elevator down into the grief and that sense of betrayal that this is that something that this oh. can still happen in, and then and then the sort of larger betrayal of like the the solidarity rallies for Hamas on university campuses and in oh, the, cities. Oh, the true face oh. of evil that we're seeing in the world. You mean? Yeah. I mean, Hamas, that, at that, least at least you can understand on some visceral level that we're face-to-face with the enemy there. 
college kids celebrating enthusiastically right. the torture, right. kidnapping, and murder of women and children. Right, right. And and that's and that's where I've always said it's like you know the, the like there's a lot of people that are really really upset because they really want to have a pogrom and like they can't have a pogrom. Well, and so it's like apparently the gloves are off now. <laughs> right, and so and so Hamas got to have their pogrom, and now there's a whole bunch of people celebrating because they're 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 like um what's it called um living uh vicariously. They're vicariously having their pogrom through Hamas's pogrom and Hamas's oh, massacre. Absolutely, and and like and 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 at the same time, the Jews have to look after themselves. The Jews have to look after themselves. We cannot rely on the largesse, generosity, morality of the nations. And when I say the nations, I don't mean the bad guys. No, just... I just mean we have to look after ourselves. And and on a certain level, I think it's really important to say the Lubavitcher Rebbe said we don't live in a jungle. We have to, we live in a garden, and it's Hashem's garden. But we am paraphrasing, but we have to work very, very hard to reveal that garden. Yeah. We don't live in a jungle. We do not live in a jungle, right? And even in, in this time of war, we have to remember that we're actually in Hashem's garden because it's very easy to go into the dog-eat-dog, kill-you-before-you-kill-me, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I want to connect those two note, pieces you just said. Yeah. May, um, which yeah. Is, well, the first one was that we have to rely on ourselves. And the other one is that we live in a garden, even though the world wants us to see it as a jungle. Where do they meet? And they meet in a very profound definition of what it is to be Am Yisrael, right? Like Bilam, one of our great enemies of the past, as long as we're bringing up the, the all hate, great haters mm -hmm. of all times, right? Bilam mm -hmm. called us Am Livadadishkon, which is usually translated as a nation that dwells alone. But the truth of the matter is, Yishkon is very closely related to Shechina, to the indwelling presence of God. Not only that, it just doesn't make sense. If we're a nation that's spent, meant to dwell alone, then why put us at the crossroads of the ancient world? I mean, I'd have dropped this in the Gobi Desert or down in Antarctica, right? It's supposed to dwell alone. Let's be alone. But the reality is, is that we're an indwelling people. We're meant to be referencing our inner experience. Uh, our leaders, as a, the Gemara says, a karcha de kulabe. We're a city that has all it needs. Our own leaders, our priests, etc. But, but, and therefore, like you said, we, we don't need to rely upon the nations. But at the same time, we can't let our mentality be shaped by the nations. We choose to live in a garden even as we fight the lions at the gate. And that those are both, you see how they connect? We're an amlevadadishkon, we're an indwelling people. We're spiritually, materially self-referential. And in doing so, we have a power to make this jungle the garden that it truly is. It's a beautiful quote from the Rebbe. Mm, yeah, yeah, and, and and that's the thing is that is that and that to me is part of what it means to be a Jewish soldier, Jewish warrior, you know, and an Aleph male for that matter, is that we're holding the paradox of on the one hand being like may my may my aim be true and may my bullet find its mark, right? Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, like Hashem, like you know, make a miracle. And let me not have to fight here anymore. Like, like let let there be. No, I don't like, agree with that yeah. second piece. Is that we're doing, we're aiming, and we're and we're striking for the sake of the vision. It's part of tilling the garden. And yes, there will come a time when we can beat our swords into plowshares. But we're not there. We're not asking God for miracles so we don't have to fight. We're asking God for strength that we can win, so that we can then beat our swords into plowshares. Meaning, there's still a higher vision. There There's still a, a higher vision. Out of vision of victory, war is immoral. You know, I think that I think on that note, now we're getting a little bit more esoteric, but like, 
you know, there's, there's an idea in, um, let's just call it spiritual teachings that when you're on a battlefield, if you're killing with your ego, then you're no longer in alignment. Let's just put it like that, that like, if it's like that, like, it's like, I effing hate you and I want you to die then that's that's problematic if if that's your posture in the battlefield i I was gonna say you're nothing better than an animal the truth is you're worse than an animal you're a human being that has destroyed the the image of god within them as our enemies have done so then what is the proper posture that is not from an egoic place it's of like i'm in the service of a higher cause or as we're talking about in the you know the jewish heroes in project mysterious mephish lamontov that there's a higher vision that i'm wielding destruction for i think that's one of the most powerful teachings of the the warrior archetype in in men's work is this idea that the warrior wields destruction for the sake of life right and there has to be belief that there's a good that it's in service of because without that good you're not you're not um you know you're weeding in the garden you're you're just digging up the earth and if we want to take the rebbe's image right and and, that's what we're doing we're going to destroy hamas from the garden of the world right and hashem should bless the idf with tremendous success and and at the same time um that 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 Hashem's soldiers should remember Hashem. Yes, that they should. In that process, they should, everything should be done. But Elohim, everything should be done in the image of God. That I agree with a hundred percent. And that's why I said that the, I, one has to ask the question if they feel guilty of what that guilt is serving, because so often we feel guilty because we're not actually forcing ourselves to live up to what you're describing. And we feel guilty because we find strength in in the anger and hate. We feel guilty because we 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 slide into. You know, either the numbness or the negativity, right? Whereas if we hold ourselves to the standard and the belief that a hero is someone who, who transcends their limited sense of self for the sake of good, and that good is real, and that transcendence could be to die and it can be to kill. And yes, there's a vision of beating our source into plowshares, but until it comes, it's our obligation for the sake, not only of our own people, but for humanity as a whole to destroy evil. To destroy evil and not good. Correct. But, but I'll tell you this. When I was in Yeshiva in Gutsayson during the second intifada, Rav Shlomo Riskin, he should be healthy and well, he used to give us um, Shir Klali, sort of a, he gave, uh, taught the entire Yeshiva every week. And he stood up during the second intifada and he said that the most clear moral statement in the Torah is, is uh, <clears throat> excuse me, is the case of what's called Hababa Machteret, the person who tunnels into your house. But mm-hmm. people are most familiar with the way the Gemara phrases, which is Habala Hargecha, Hashkim Lahorgo. Someone who comes to kill you, wake early and kill him first. Why mm-hmm. is that the most moral statement in the Torah, says Robert Skin? Because it is an assertion that evil exists. And that mm-hmm. the proper response to evil is destruction. And that those of us who are unwilling to either make that distinction or unwilling to enter into, remember what I said, the moral distinctions, more decisions are between bad and, and slightly better, not between good and bad. And if, we're un, if we can make that distinction, but we're unwilling to actually fight the messy battle to make it real in the world, then we haven't really made the distinction. Because evil exists, the response to it is destruction. And you're absolutely correct. We must be constantly vigilant within ourselves that that evil doesn't take root and flourish within us because it is a source of power when we're fighting the other. There's no question. But the dark I have side deep, of the force. Yes, but I have a deep belief in our people that we are servants of that garden. We were meant, with all of humanity, to till and to tend the of the ula shomra, to, right? To to keep and 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 to make that garden flourish. We were given the tools Amen. to do it, 
And part of that tool is, is, is an instruction that there is commanded war within the Torah. And if there is commanded war within the Torah, that means the reality of war, which may have increased in its firepower, but has certainly not changed in its reality, as we see the sort of primitive version of war that's been brought to our gates today. Now, the reality of war is that people who are not fighting die. And that's not a good thing. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not advocating for that, nor am I making light of it. I'm just pointing out if it's a reality of war and there is commanded war, then once you are in a commanded war and the three types of commanded war, according to the Rambam, are the, the conquest of the seven nations, the fight for the land, the destruction of Amalek, which is the existential battle of Am Yisrael, which is why we originally fought them outside the land at Rifidim and then in Shushan with Mordechai and Esther and, and etc. And there's simple Hatzalat Am, that a people has to save itself. This war is all three. And if that is the case, we are in a commanded war. And that means that that is the most clear moral statement that we can make, which is not to say that people deserve to die. I'm not going to pontificate on that. I'm just saying the simple fact. War is a reality. It is in this case commanded. And until we're able to beat our swords into plowshares, then the right posture is to destroy evil, increase good, and tend the garden that God has given us. Okay, Mike, I think we've hit it. I, I, hit I it. feel like I, I could go more, but like... But no, I think you're you know, right. So, so yeah. then I want to say I want to say thank you. First, I want to say thank you to you because I know in our previous discussion, we were going toe-to-toe and uh, and I appreciate you bringing your full self here and, and giving us the opportunity to articulate some of these things. I want to say thank you to the Rabbanish Olam who is there always. I want to call everyone to cleave to God in whatever way you can right now. We must cleave to one another and cleave to God and become vessels for that larger goodness that can come into the world. I want to pray for the safety and victory of our soldiers. I want to pray for the return and health of our captives. I want to pray for the healing of all the wounded in body, in heart, in mind, and soul. And I want to pray that this becomes the beginning of a great awakening, that there be a a, a wave of goodness and truth that should flow out from this situation, which really sets our feet on the path of the day when we can beat our swords into plowshares speedily in our day. Let it be soon. Let it be now. I'm Rob Mike Foyer. Uh, This is a a little taste of things to come for the Jewish Heroism Project, and and I want to invite you to check out jewishheroism.com. It's a project that is getting underway. It's never too late, never too soon. Reach out to me, robmikefoyer, gmail.com. You can find me at robmikefoyer on Facebook. If you want to be part of this project, I'm happy to hear your thoughts and to receive your assistance. God bless. Stay strong, stay safe, and pray for victory. Amen.